All right, let us go ahead and flip to Hebrews chapter 12. And that last verse uh, says a lot about what we're going to see this morning. Heart of my own heart, whatever befalls, whatever happens, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Instead of reading all of that section again, I want to focus and just and reread verses 5 through 11. And then we're going to flip over a couple pages to James chapter 1 and read just a couple verses out of there. And then we'll pray and ask the Lord to help us in this time. So Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. End quote. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, you then are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live For they disciplined us, that would be our earthly fathers, for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Let me repeat that. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now flip with me, probably just a page or two, to James chapter 1. Go to the right. Verse 2. We'll just read verse 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A quick prayer. Let's pray. Father, what... Weighty words we have found in Hebrews and James. What a weighty matter. And so I plea in this moment that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to see what privilege it is uh, 
to suffer for the sake of our Lord Jesus in the discipline and love of our Heavenly Father. Teach us this thing which seems so counterintuitive to the world. Help us, Spirit of God, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So six weeks ago, I started Hebrews 12 and looking at the discipline of God towards his children. And I said, in two weeks, we'll come back and pick this up. Six weeks later, here we are. Um, so that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't tell you to not believe what I say. Just uh, trust that I'm trying to be guided by the Spirit of God. And sometimes he knows better than I. Well, let me rephrase. Always, he knows better than I. So let me remind you of where we are in Hebrews, um, but also help just remind you that we are discussing the topic of fatherly discipline. God does discipline his children, which how, see, he knew what he was doing because he waited to do this after we looked at the doctrine of adoption last week. So it worked out, which was one of the points that we were going to have to work through today, which we did that last Sunday. Um, but when we did, when we were here last, there were four sort of things we needed to accomplish or get through to understand God disciplining his children. We did one of them. Uh, it was the Sunday before Christmas. And we, got, we, we took a minute to understand what discipline is. Um, if and if you go back and listen to that sermon, um, it would be very helpful. I listened to it this week, and it was very helpful for me. Um, but in a nutshell, we saw that discipline is God training up His children. Uh, in God training up His children, He's doing it purposefully, and He has an end goal. When God disciplines his children, it sometimes is difficult. The words like chastening or scourging is used. Um, He's not punishing his children, but he's training them up and cleansing them of all unrighteousness. Now, why would he not punish his children? Because their punishment was on Christ on the cross. God does not discipline his children, or God does not punish his children, for their punishment has been borne by Jesus on the cross. He now disciplines them for the sake of their good, their eternal good. And this morning, we're going to move forward, and we're going to, we want to understand three things. The purpose, the basis, or the grounds by which he does it. And then the how. So the three things that we're going to really focus on this morning, the purpose, the basis and grounds, which we won't spend too much time on, but then also the how. Um, It's been so long since we've been in Hebrews, I have to remind you of a few things in this letter. Number one, if you catch it by the title of the book, this letter... It's to, more than likely, a group of converted Jews. 
They have a they have a past. Either uh, they were ethnic Jews or proselytes, but they have a very good understanding of Judaism and probably came out of it into Christianity. Um, but as they've been Christians, they're being tempted to go back, to leave Christ and go back to the sacrifices of bulls and goats. And also, it seems like they're a group who are hesitant to grow in their understanding of doctrine. And if you were here this morning for Sunday school class, you would understand why that was a bad thing. But we also aren't learned something in the latter half of Hebrews, and that's that these Christians are suffering. They're enduring hardship. Words like struggle, public criticism, and public affliction are used to describe what's happened to this audience of this letter. Why? Because that because they are Christians for the sake of their faith. But so you kind of understand that they're getting pressed to go back to Judaism. And how are they getting pressed to go back? By the persecution of being a Christian. So we could just shed Christ, forget about him, and go back to the, the way things were. We'll, life will be easier. Sounds a lot like the Israelites in the wilderness, right? We could just go back to slavery in Egypt. Things would be better for us. Do you see the irony in that statement? Same thing that's happening with these uh, these Hebrews who have been converted to Christianity. But you get down to chapter 12, verse 1, and the, the point that he's been hammering home for about two or three chapters now is that they must endure. They must stand firm. They must hold fast. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us... Uh, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's saying, look to Christ, remain steadfast in the faith, hang on, do not swerve to the right or the left. And then verse 3 comes. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then we see this introduction into discipline. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten, or have you forgotten, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he says in a quote in Proverbs 3, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So what does God want them to get and understand in those few verses? Considering where they are, where they've come from, and the problems that they're going through, what is he trying to tell them in verses 5, 6, 7, or on into 11? And I'm going to give it to you in one simple but hard-to-swallow sentence. 
God brings difficulty into your lives because He wants you to mature. He wants you to grow spiritually through that suffering. Let me say it again. God brings difficulty into our lives because He wants us to mature and grow spiritually through that suffering. Now there are three things that you have to get, and we can call them doctrines. Three teachings of Scripture that help us understand how that makes any sense. The first is adoption. We discussed that last week. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, just for a bit. The second is holiness. And the third is the sovereign providence of God. You might come here this morning as a Christian experiencing trouble, trial, suffering, maybe even persecution for the sake of Christ. You know, and there's a question that stirs up in our minds, whether we say it out loud or not, whether we want to admit it or not, a question that's been as old as time, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We've all thought it, right? Now, I'll say this. That's not really the right question because you find me a good person. And I would say, why does God do anything good for any of us? Right? But I, don't, but I think we have to change the question still even further. Why does God allow Christians, his children, to suffer? Now, that's a big question. Now, Hebrews 12 helps us understand it in one sort of light. Because we could come at that answer biblically for, from a, a few different perspectives. But the one in Hebrews 12 gives the answer. And he says this. He allows his children to suffer. Because he loves you. He allows you to suffer because he wants you to be made more like his son. But I will tell you that he doesn't allow it. He has purposed it. He has planned it. It is not something that threw him off guard. He did not see your struggle or your trial or your, the hatred of persecution towards you because of your faith and say, mm, how can I fix this or make this better for you, for that Christian, for my son, for my daughter? No, no. He puts you. He brings difficulty into your lives so that you might grow in Christ because he loves you. Now, these three things are absolutely essential. Um, and so let's begin just quickly with the love of God towards his children. Adoption, the doctrine of adoption. When we read the catechism answer, 
it says that when we're adopted into the family of God, we have uh, a right to all the privileges of God, of sons of God. Okay. One of those privileges is discipline. It's interesting. When you read that, we have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. What did we establish last week? That there is one true son. Did he escape suffering? By no means. By no means. We cannot be united to the man of sorrows for salvation and not think that we have a right to live our lives without difficulty. But the beauty of it is, is that God has ordained our difficulty for our good because he loves us. Look look again at verses 5 and 6. And see the love of a father. And you ha- and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. You're like, I don't want discipline. That hurts. That's not fun. I don't want God to reprove me. Well, look at verse 7. No, I'm sorry, verse 8. For if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, that means all the sons of God, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, back to adoption. To be a son and daughter of God is not by physical birth. You are not adopted into the family of God just because you have been born. And I got to thinking about it later uh, uh, this week. About the garden. I'm getting off topic. But when we, when we were thinking about the garden and Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, and, and God says to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, to, to the devil. What, is, what does he say? I will put enmity between your seed, Satan, and the woman's seed. And do you know when that first shows up? In Cain and Abel. In the, in, in the very sons of Adam and Eve, we see a son of the devil and a son of God. And from that moment... Until the very last day when Jesus finishes off his adversary. We have the sons and daughters of God and we have the sons and daughters of the devil. And so we've been privileged as sons and daughters, as children of God, to be disciplined by our heavenly Father. No one escapes it. Because if you do try to escape discipline, that's like 
a rebel kid at home, right? Who doesn't want to be disciplined. Who doesn't want the love of their father. If you are not, uh, if you do not grasp the the truth of what it means to be brought from a rebel into the family of God, what it means to be brought from a sinner who loves the world and the things of it, brought into uh, the church, the body of Christ as sons and daughters for the sake of the glory of Christ. If you cannot grasp what God has done to you and birthing you spiritually into the family of God. You, it's hard to comprehend that God would bring difficulty to you because He loves you. And that's why, that's why we, we want to avoid the slippery slope of sloppy doctrine. Because when you, when you can't comprehend the truth of being born into the family of God and the privileges that come with it, when suffering or trials come, you will not respond in a way that will glorify the Lord, but you will curse God and die, as Job's wife suggested. So we must understand that discipline, hardship from God comes to us because He loves us. God brings difficulty in our lives because He wants us to become more like His Son. Which gets us to the second, the second one, holiness. And I have, I have told you guys about holiness uh, every day, each way, this way and that way. But how big a deal is holiness? Like how big a deal is it? We'll look at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's a non-negotiable. No holiness, no heaven. No Christ-likeness, no Christ. First Peter, don't, don't turn there, but we know the verse. First Peter quotes Leviticus and says, Be holy, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is the purpose of God's discipline. Becoming like Christ is why God rebukes us and chastises us and scourges us. Your being made more like Christ is why you are dealing with your problems right now. So we have to start again. This is why I was trying to help you understand that Without an understanding of these three realities, God's discipline towards his children just don't make any sense. That would be like a father beating its kid for no purpose. I'm going to spank you. Why? I just want to spank you. That doesn't make any sense. And apart from understanding God's true love for his children in Jesus Christ and the purpose of desiring that they be made more like Christ... Be made more holy. Without those purposes, you're just saying this is just a mean God. 
It doesn't make any sense. So you have to start and say, okay, I'm supposed to be holy. Why? Because God's holy. That's it. That's the starting point. That's the reason. Be holy, for I am holy. If we fail at understanding the holiness of God, we can't take another step here. But what does that mean that God is holy? Well, he says, I am Yahweh. There's none like me. That's what it means. There's no one you can compare God to in his love, in his righteousness, in his justice. In every attribute of God, he is incomparable to anyone. And even in his righteous anger, there is none like him. And so it makes sense that he says, hey, be like me. Because if you're going to be more like God, who are you being less like? The world. In whom you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Fueled by what? Your own desires and lustful passions. But no, God wants his children to be more like him. Be holy, for I am holy. And without this holiness, you cannot see me. You cannot enter the kingdom. And we, you know, it, it's a lie when we tell our kids who have been, um, who, who make a profession of faith, or even adults who make a profession of faith, and say, You've been saved. Now, see you later. Go and live as you please because you've been forgiven. We love it. Uh, you've been forgiven of the past sins, the present sins, and the future sins. And so they say, okay, I'm going to go yuck it up then because all my sins have been forgiven. I don't know. By no means. The blood of Christ was shed that you might be purified from a dead conscience. That you might serve a living God. That you might walk in a newness of life. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Do you know that Jerusalem was on a hill, right? you know what it said at the top of that hill? The temple. The place where God dwelled. Do you know, who else, you know what else is going to happen on that hill? He can come back to it. You know who can ascend that hill? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Let's not get, let's not get, I'm going to be careful here. Let's not get overly, hmm, confident. When someone says, yes, I believe in Jesus. When we can sit and turn and watch them sin unrepentantly left and right. Many today think that we can live how we please because we got saved at church camp. Or we walked an aisle, we prayed a prayer. 
But here's what we understand. God's will, God's will for all who are in Christ is holiness, Christ-likeness. I'm not going to do this, but there are one, two, three, four verses where it says that God's will for you, Christian, is holiness. The same Greek word. It's either translated as holiness or sanctification or sanctified or holy. Now, I've been told that my grandma makes the best coconut cream pie in Fulton County. I don't like coconut. (laughs) But let's say that at her house, they were going to have a coconut cream pie party. And... I was telling everybody how excited I am. So excited to have go to my grandma's and have coconut cream pie, this and that. I'm a coconut cream pie lover. But I won't touch the stuff. Now, when I get to her house, do you think I'm going to have a good time? Absolutely not, because I hate coconut. Now, do you know when you get to heaven, do you know what's going to be there? Holiness. And do you think that we can live here on this earth professing the name of Christ and not pursuit of holiness and then get to heaven and love where we are? The people who hate holiness now, who do not pursue holiness in this life, will get to heaven, stand before God, and he goes, nope, wrong door. The people who are outside of Christ, who do not pursue holiness in Christ, will not want to be in the presence of God. They will hate Him because they hate Him now. Be holy as I am holy. But the last thing about holiness is that Jesus died so that you would be holy. He didn't just die so that you would be forgiven, but He died so that you would be New and be made like him. He died for our sins, but it was it's way more than that. He died so that you might be like him. That's why Hebrews 10 says. And by that will, we have been sanctified, that same word for holy or holiness. You could just read it this way. And by that will, we have been made holy through the offering of the blood or the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or being made holy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be what? Yes, holy. And you who were once alienated and hostile to mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you, what do you think? Holy. If you don't, desire holiness you will hate the discipline of God because you will think of it as unfair and pointless you will think of it as why God why 
God is holy. His will for us is holiness. And His Son died that we would be made holy. What does this have to do with discipline? Well, God brings difficulty in our lives because He wants us to be mature in Christ. To be made more like His Son. Every difficult situation, persecution, suffering, trial, and affliction gives opportunity for cleansing, sharpening, and maturing. Everyone. Look at 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Think about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And I know we mentioned this that last time we were looking at this passage. Paul's thorn in the flesh obviously gave him pain. It was obviously a struggle because what did he do? Three times he goes to the Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. And three times God says, nope, you're keeping it. Nope, you're keeping it. I want you to experience pain, Paul. Why? He says, so that I would not be conceited. God inflict trouble on Paul, suffering on Paul. So that he would be more like his Lord. And Paul cries out, your grace is sufficient. When I am weak, you are strong. He trained Paul in humility. He trained Paul to trust him more. That's what James 5 or James 1 says, right? He tells us to count our trials joy. Why? Because in our trials, we are tested. Our faith is tested. And when our faith is tested, it produces steadfastness. Well, that's a a theme word for Hebrews. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. And complete, lacking in nothing. Romans says something similar, and I'll just read it for you. Romans 5, he says, uh, Not only that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Another buzzword for Hebrews. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Suffering... When you get through it, it's given to you for the sake of hope. Work that one out. Suffering is given to us for the sake of hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God loves us. And he's given us his spirit. And he's poured that into our hearts. And that's the only way to endure suffering. Is by the power of the Spirit of God that dwells in you. And that's the only way. That's the only way you can suffer in Christ. 
is by depending on his spirit. Same passage in Proverbs 3 that, that, that the author in Hebrews is quoting that says, uh, do not disregard the uh, discipline of the Lord, also says, do not lean on your own understanding. Same chapter. But trust the Lord, even when it hurts. Every trial, every moment of suffering presents an opportunity to sin or obey, to love God or love yourself, to deny yourself or live for yourself. Every struggle, every moment of suffering. It's uh, the word that is used a lot in Scripture when it comes to testing or try or testing refers to a process of of purifying metals metals are not pure in themselves when they come from the ground but what what a person does what a what a goldsmith or whatever you want to call them does they will put their gold in a pot and they will turn up the heat They'll crank it and it'll get so hot. And what happens? All the bad stuff comes up to the top. And that that smithy scrapes all those impurities out. And you know what he does? Cranks the heat up again. And he does it and he does it and he does it until he's got pure gold. And you know that the testing, that's that word, of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, um, Corrie Ten Boom, you heard of her? Corrie Ten Boom lived during uh, World War II. Her family, um, her family hid Jews in their house and eventually got caught. And as far as I know, Corey and her sister ended up in a concentration camp. And I'll get to the end of that story here in just a second. But before that, Corey was reading a, a story... A biography, I'm not sure who it was, but it was of, of, a, of a martyr, Christian martyrs, who had died for their faith. And she goes to her dad, distraught, and is like, okay, um, dad, I'm a little concerned. Like, I, I know what I'm supposed to do if, if my life is on the line for the sake of Jesus, but I don't think I can do that. She, she, she was unprepared for that. I'd say that too. But her dad, her dad said, um, she says, he said, uh, Corey, when when you travel to to other relatives, when when do I give you the money for the ticket? Do I give it to you two weeks out, six months out? He's no, I give it to you when you need it. And that's what God does. He provides for us. When we need it. Corey was sent to a concentration camp. 
And she could have cursed God. She could have blamed the devil. Easily could have blamed Hitler. But she was taught a lesson in her time in a concentration camp. To give thanks in all circumstances. She was put not just into a concentration camp, but she was in a in a in a um, a bunkhouse that was infested with fleas, and she she couldn't handle it. And through that suffering, the Lord taught her by her sister to give thanks in all circumstances. She learned. She learned. Through her suffering. And she did not blame Hitler or the devil, but she thanked God for her to be in that situation. Because it was through that situation that many in that concentration camp came to Christ through Corey and her sister's Bible study. You know why? Because the guards wouldn't dare step a foot in that bunk. Because of those fleas. Thank God for the fleas. Thank God for our suffering. Because he loves us. He wants what's best for us. Even when we're not sure what's best for us. So let me just wrap this up. Final thing, I'm going to skip a lot here. The sovereign providence of God. That's a very theologically loaded phrase. But this is the final aspect that we must understand, and I've hinted at it already, if we're going to understand how God disciplines us. Sovereign meaning He rules, He has authority. You know, the, if you followed the news, they shot down the Chinese balloon, and then they shot down something else, and then they shot down something else, I think. And I was listening to the press conference the other day, yesterday, or Friday, of the Pentagon, how someone had either invaded or overrun our, our, our nation's sovereignty. And I was like, man, how sovereign are we that someone just come in and invade our own sovereignty? undermine our sovereignty and I thought about God no one no one can undermine the rule and the authority of God not Satan himself Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein you step foot into his sovereignty you get squashed the only way you come into his sovereignty is by his allowance. Job 41. Who has get first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven, God says, is mine. Psalm 50. For the world and its fullness, God says, are mine. All things belong to God he is the creator, he is the potter, and everything is his clay. So that's what sovereign means. What's providence mean? Providence means that he is providing, sustaining, or governing 
all aspects of the world. You put those two together, and here's a definition for you. Everything is God's. He does with His as He pleases, and nothing happens in His creation apart from His will, decree, or purpose. And you think, that's scary. But as a son and daughter of God, that is the best news that you could have heard today. The absolutely best news you heard could have heard today. Because his will and his decree and his purpose for his sons and his daughters are always for their good. Even in their suffering. Because he willed and decreed and ordained all things. And he does all things good for his children. What will the molder say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Psalm 115. But our God is in the heaven, heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Daniel 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. You told somebody that today. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and the among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, stay his hand or say to him, why have you done? Nothing happens apart from his will, decree or purpose. That's why we read Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. I won't go back there, but understand that. God says in Isaiah 46 that I've declared the beginning from the end and all things in between, including our trials and testing and suffering. And because of that passage, because of that truth, that's why when when uh, that's why Genesis 50 can say this. As for you, brothers of Joseph, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. That's why Job can say this in chapter 1. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in Acts 2, this Jesus Paul or P- Peter preaches, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I'm going to say this again. Everything is God's. He does with his as he pleases. Nothing happens in his creation apart from his will, decree, or purpose. And it's always for his ultimate glory and his children's eternal good. Peter, I believe it was John, were arrested for healing a man, for preaching Christ. They were told, you do that again, and it's not going to be good. You keep saying the name of Jesus around here in Jerusalem, guys. We are going to do bad things to you. They leave they leave uh, where they were. They go back to other believers, and they say this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together with God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, 
said by the Holy Spirit. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why? Why are these people acting fools? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So the people who are persecuting the apostles are railing against Christ, and they said, these people did, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And you know know what they said? They didn't say stop them. They didn't say take away our suffering. This is what they said. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue To speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, they placed in which were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continuing to speak the word of God with boldness. Two quick points on the sovereign on God's sovereign providence. I'm not going to say anything about them. Number one, we give the devil too much credit and God not enough. When you drive somewhere and your tire goes out, don't give the, the devil credit for that. The devil is on a leash. He, he, he go, you have to have this balance. He is a roaring lion, and he goes around to seek, to kill, steal, and destroy. But he is limited by the God of this universe. Do not give him the credit he does not deserve. But please... Beware of what he does. And number two, just because something bad is happening to us doesn't mean God isn't doing something good for us. I'll say that again. Just because something bad is happening to us doesn't mean God isn't doing something good for us. Romans 8.28 doesn't make any sense apart from this. Because Romans 8.28 says, We know, that's a heavy word, we know that for those who love God, and who are those? His children adopted in Christ. All things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul can't say that if this isn't true. Everything is God's. He does with his as he pleases and nothing happens in creation apart from his will, decree and purpose. And it's always for his glory and always for your good as a child of God. So here are three encouragements that come from this passage. Trust God. Trust Him. Trust Him. You have to. Because if you don't trust Him when the transmission goes out, if you don't trust Him when the bank account goes dry, when you don't trust Him when your spouse is on, when your spouse is dying, if you don't trust Him when you've been told that you've got cancer, when you don't trust Him when your child is rebelling in your home, if you don't trust Him in all these points, your suffering is in vain. Trust that just because something bad is happening does not mean that God isn't doing something good for you. And you might say, well, I don't feel that way now. Well, I need you to take off your worldly temporary lenses and I need you to look at through your eternal lenses. Because that's the good God cares for you. Your soul Trust God. Number two, 
remember that Christ has gone before us. This is just an interesting passage that I want you to think about. I don't want you to forget it this week. I just want you to think about it, meditate, read on it. In Hebrews, this is what it says about Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. He's gone before us. He's he's blazed a path. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you don't know Christ, if you don't love Christ, you are going to go day by day tired, worn out, ready for the end to come because there's no hope. If you don't know and love Christ, there's no hope. Trust God. Remember that Christ has gone before you. Number three, do not be overcome by your circumstances, but be strengthened and encouraged knowing that God knows what He is doing. No matter how bad it seems, you must believe this about God and about who you are as a child of God. You must believe that God is your Father, that your elder brother is crucified but risen, and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. What a trifecta. What a trifecta. You can say, you can say this. What is cancer? God will never leave me. Financial struggles? God will never forsake me. For I am a child of God in Jesus Christ and an heir with Christ. I'm ready to suffer with him and for him as he did for me. So, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without it. No one will see the Lord. Peace and holiness are the things we ought to strive for. Peace and holiness. And I leave you... And if you were here last Sunday night, I did something kind of weird. I read Romans 8, 14 through 17, but I stopped short of 17. I was like, that's really good, but we can't go there. This is why, because we needed to go there today. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not... Do not, if you are unwilling to suffer for the sake of Christ, with Christ, for Christ, you will not be glorified with Him. But do not forget that when you suffer with Him, He will not leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we are just... Weak, feeble people, and I know it and because I feel it, because I, I am. And we bring today such lofty truths that are sometimes a hard thing to handle. 
And so, Spirit of God, I ask you that you would teach teach your people these truths so that they might grow in their understanding of your love for them, your desire for their Christ-likeness, for their, their hope in their eternal good. And Lord, that there is nothing, not one speck of dust in this air that you are not in charge of. Not one cancer cell, not one missing dollar, not one uh, busted up tire, not one broken relationship. For the earth is yours and the fullness thereof. So help us to trust you. Help us to trust you as we go through the difficult sufferings and trials and know your love for us in them. In Jesus' name, amen.